Wall Street is full of corruption and it is baked in to every aspect of our society. MMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding at the macro level. In the 1900s, Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This was written over a hundred years ago. This is The Rogue Scholar with Steve Grumbine. All right, everybody, this is Steve Grumbine with The Rogue Scholar. Today, I have my friend and guest, Dr. Devarian Baldwin, who is the author of In the Shadows of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. And without further ado, let me bring all my guests. Devarian, welcome so much to the show, sir. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So, you know, we we had you on our podcast, Macro and Cheese, because it was very much an important subject to me. Obviously, student debt's a huge concern to me. Um, the inequality in our education system is a huge concern to me. Ending neoliberalism is a huge concern to me. Elitism, oh, classism, oh, on and on and on and on. Your book covered like literally every stratum of this thing. And one of the things that jumped out at me after our talk, you had made mention that we could go into community policing and the way that the university system um, has really become about policing the community outside, like like the university extending into the communities and, mm-hmm. and, and the motivations for that kind of policing. But before we jump into that subject matter, I was wondering if maybe you could give our viewers and listeners an overview of your book. Um, and before we jump in, for those people who have not heard our interview on Macro and Cheese. No, thanks a lot, Steve, for the opportunity. And um, thanks for having me on here again. Uh, the title of the book is called In the Shadow of the Ivy Tower, um, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. And in the book, what I really try to explore is um, we've talked, as you mentioned before, about some of the inequalities that happen on campus around student debt, um, around racial inequalities in terms of admissions, or uh, faculty hiring, um, uh, the corporatization of the university in terms of the uh, the Koch brothers and other private investors sh- shaping curriculum. But we rarely looked at the impact that colleges have on their surrounding communities. And so in this book, I try to highlight this, the rise of the formation of what I call universe cities. And this notion of universe cities is an attempt to kind of significantly highlight higher education's growing control over the economic development and also the urban governance of our cities, and especially targeting the uh, black and brown neighborhoods and the working class communities that largely surround our campuses. So just to give the the listeners uh, and, and folks out there a sense of the magnitude of this, right now, colleges and universities have become the biggest employers, real estate holders, healthcare providers, and also policing agents in our cities and towns um, in ways that we rarely look at. Now, on one side, you can say, this is great. You know, innovation, you know, the uh, the Amazon HQ2 headquarters in Northern Virginia, they're this economic driver, they're doing these, they're, they're, they're bringing jobs, et cetera. But this, with this growing power, there is a cost for those of us who live and attempt to survive in the shadows of these ivory towers, these 
campuses expand into the existing communities and raise housing costs above the means of uh, existing residents. Uh, they they uh, control, uh, they dictate the wage ceiling and uh, uh, discourage collective bargaining efforts on the part of not faculty labor, but low wage labor in terms of the grounds crew, the cafeteria, the food service staff, the, uh, the support staff. And then these very same residents and workers um, face racial profiling as they come onto these campuses. Now, not just come onto the campuses, but as they live in their own communities and these campus wow. police have jurisdictions now that extend beyond the campus. So what we're having is basically a modern day feudal condition. It's a fiefdom. Wow. These, these institutions are not just offering higher education, they have this controlling force that you know alongside of the government and uh the financial industries higher education is this third pillar of the of dictating life chances in our cities and towns now my focus is on cities in my book but this orientation this analysis can easily be extended to college towns to small towns that have colleges um it's a it's a comprehensive it's a national story so when you talk about policing, I, I've just got to ask, are these sanctioned by the city police or are they private police? That's a great question. It's both. <laughs> and and police are normally they're, they're, they're certified by the state. Um, they, they, they have to go through, you know, police academy training um, that allows them to uh, carry a weapon and be certified to uh, to cover jurisdictions over their municipalities. OK. But in the campus policing forces, something that people should recognize that is that most schools have campus police, like about 75 percent. Nearly all carry guns and about nine in 10 have arrest and patrol jurisdictions off campus. By 2014, more than 100 colleges were also armed to the teeth from the infamous Department of Defense 1033 program. Now, if you don't know about that program, this program was was exposed um, during the uprisings in Ferguson after the shooting of Michael Brown, where we, uh, uh, the public discovered or was made, made, made to understand that uh, decommissioned military weapons were being sent to municipal and citywide police forces as a part of this Department of Defense 1033 program. So we're talking about um, everything from tanks and rocket launchers to militarized uh, Humvees. And so colleges are also gotten into the game on this situation. And, go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and, and, I, and I understand from a from a from a, a general audience perspective, if you have like a University of Chicago on the South Side or a USC in South Central LA, the so-called hoods, you think, well, of course we want we want our kids and our work. I work on a campus. We want people to be safe. Right. But safety is this very loaded, loaded term, because if we think about what is the function, what are the crimes? So talking about safety, what are the major right. crimes on campus and campus areas? It's sexual violence and substance abuse. Those are the primary crimes and, and it's property theft. Those are the primary crimes. Campus police do a horrible job of preventing those crimes. Now, one might say capacity. We need, like, as Joe Biden just said last week, we need more police. <laughs> but if you look at the actual numbers, if you look at the actual conditions of these areas, 
It's not capacity, it's intent. Because if, you, if, if we understand these institutions as economic entities, what school wants to admit that they have a campus full of predominantly white criminals? So, <laughs> so, what, so, so what happens? What happens? The police don't turn inward to police the actual crimes that is their right. primary goal in their task. They turn outward as a show of force in these largely poor, poor white and black and brown neighborhoods that surround these campuses because they're signaling to students, families, and faculty, but also private investors that come to campuses to get research and development work done, uh, uh, construction companies, uh, uh, other kinds of private entities. They want to signal to them that this area, while we all want to come back into the city, that this area is safe and open for business. So the point here is that if we look discreetly at campus police and their function as compared to their actual effectiveness, there's a total disconnect between the actual safety needs, both on campus and in the community, and what campus police actually do. Now, you went through a lot of trouble of explaining the the campus uh, business model, which mm -hmm. looks a lot like amenities creation for right. these very wealthy people. The rush to get back to the universities is to show everyone why you absolutely must be at our university. Mm -hmm. uh, on mm -hmm. all these aspects that have nothing to do with actually educating anyone, but right. all to do with the quote unquote university experience mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and the communities that they are planning these universities in tend to not reap any of the benefits, but literally live, I, I can almost envision like the old John Travolta boy in the plastic bubble movie, looking <laughs> right. out the window as the other kids are playing in there and you're trapped in what feels like a prison. That's mm. got to be what it's like in these communities to some extent. Is that not correct? No, it's a great um, um, uh, description and understanding. So just to be really brief, you mentioned this whole kind of uh, amenities phenomena. This, this is rooted from an economic standpoint in today's dominant economy known as the knowledge economy you know in, in 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 a world at least in a u.s world without factories we know factories are in the global south how do we get our our clothing and our shoes and our nikes and etc but in the u.s a world a, a world a society without factories has shifted from mass production uh factories to these what i call knowledge factories on these factories the primary driving economic engine of today's urban economy is academic research and development um, in areas like uh, med tech, pharmaceuticals, military defense weaponry. Um, the research and development and as happening on university campuses is being sent out and turned into market goods and services in these areas and then comes back to the campus in the form of royalties. So in that, in that economic metric or matrix, the point is, well, how do we attract the researchers and developers and the investors and their families to live in these urban campuses? We're afraid, you know, and there's not mm. we, we divested from these cities for decades. So you're building right. these 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 faux urban bubbles, as you mentioned, what today are being called uh, research corridors, uh, uh, innovation districts, 
uh, knowledge communities, these uh, um, packed to the to the to the goals of retail, high end housing, laboratory workshops, all in these areas. So think, you know, if, if any any listeners know. So you know, like I said before, Amazon Q's North Virginia proposed headquarters, um, the shops at Yale, USC Village, uh, Cortex in St. Louis, uh, uh, Harper Court in Chicago. Um, the list goes on and on. These these faux fake urban environments, so that people will come do research and work and churn out this research and development that can come back to the to the to the area for private investors and these universities in the form of revenue. Now, of course, to make this happen, you have these campuses after decades of turning inward have expanded out into these communities that have relatively cheap land because of years of racially based divestment. So now these areas that were seen as no-go zones, as blighted, become prime real estate to build out these knowledge communities. And so in this context, the police become uh, the frontline forces in the violent confiscation and control of actual blo neighborhood blocks that are targeted for university expansion. So for example, in Chicago, in, in, in all cases, when campus police begin to gain jurisdiction over blocks that extend beyond the main campus. There has to be a memorandum of understanding signed between the university and the city that they're in. So for example, in New Haven, Yale's memorandum of, of understanding says that the Yale police has jurisdiction over the entire city of New Haven. In Chicago, wow. In Chicago, the story is very much more aligned with what I'm saying about police serving as a front line to campus expansion. Uh, University of Chicago has jurisdiction wherever there is or there's going to be a campus building. So it's it's very much so like manifest destiny, like the wild, wild west. Wow. Uh, uh, the, wow. These police forces um, are tending or tilling the soil to make these spaces available for the amenities of campus expansion, the housing, the retail, the nightlife, uh, the laboratories uh, bathed in glass and steel that we all know that architectural design so well, they set the tone, right? So retail and housing follows behind a militarized version of campus police who secure parts of the city for university development. So even before the amenities come, even before the university owns this these, these city blocks, the campus police, they dictate residential behavior and they dictate land management right so noise ordinances you know litter nuisance laws all these things and the important point about this is that even if they're primarily for public universities but even for I'm about to say primarily for private universities but even for public universities um the the police forces um are dictated by the university interest this is important this is an important point so while public universities at public universities are uh, uh their budgets come from the state right like state universities um in terms of private universities they only answer to the board of trustees the policing they only answer the board of trustees and the president because their money comes from the private university but add insult to injury when these private police at private universities go out into the world and engage in policing, because they are tied to a private entity, they are exempt from Freedom of Information Act laws. 
Wow. So they could police and they're not, there's no oversight. So, oh, and, and, and people say, well, what about public universities? Well, even though they have to answer to public uh, uh, government, their daily operations are rarely held to public account. So what you end up having is private police or semi-private police with public authority without any or very little public oversight. So wow, this, like I said before, so when insane. I mentioned a feudal, a feudal relationship, this is this is what I mean. Um, and Gosh. so, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Now I, I'm looking at this, and I know I'm going over the line with what I'm about to say, but I can see the parallel. This mm -hmm. feels an awful lot like colonialism in Israel. Mm -hmm. As they mm, push into mm -hmm. Palestine, as right. they claim areas, they take the the ne'er do goods. Those poor Palestinian people, mm -hmm, they push mm -hmm. them out of the way, gentrify right. the area Israeli style. Right. But in this case, we're talking about right here on our own home soil, mm -hmm. and we keep looking across the pond at all the right. atrocities that we see. When in fact, this is happening in probably every major city in the United States. That's right. Not just one or two. This, I mean, mm -hmm. you've got some samples, but your samples are a microcosm of the right. larger national exposure to this model. This model that's, is the model. It's not like right. a one-off here. That is the model. It's not anecdotal. It's not, like you mentioned, it's not a one-off. This, these schools, they they talk to each other. So, for example, when uh, uh, um, the president of Johns Hopkins University. Um, was thinking about starting or funding a private police force in West Baltimore. Uh, he wanted to figure out models about how to do this. So he and his leadership team, where they go, they went to they went to Chicago. They went to the University of Chicago, sat <laughs> with leadership at the university to figure out how to do this in a way that would be beneficial to the university. But what they didn't uh, uh, account for is that there would be a massive groundswell of resistance a coalition of resistance between students, some sympathetic faculty, and residents who saw this, as you pointed out, as a domestic version of colonialism or a militarized version of gentrification and displacement. Wow. And so they fought. They In 2019, this coalition occupied the administration building at Johns Hopkins for over a month to try to get to stop the push of this uh, uh, Johns Hopkins private police force. Um, just, just to make it real clear, University of Chicago, they have the second largest private police force in the world outside of the Vatican with jurisdiction over 50,000 non-student residents on the South side of Chicago. So Baltimore, Johns Hopkins wanted in certain ways, they went to the source. They wanted to figure out how to duplicate at some level that reality. <laughs> Right. Wow. And so so when when these when this coalition occupied the administration building in West at Johns Hopkins University, they fought tooth and nail to prevent this from happening. But the state house approved it. Um, I spent a significant amount of time talking with um, uh, Senator State Senator Mary Washington, um, who was number one, a Hopkins alum. Um, number two, her jurisdiction of her governance for, uh, uh, covered Johns Hopkins in West Baltimore. And she said quite blunt, uh, bluntly, Johns Hopkins having a private police force in my district is like a Vatican City in the middle of Baltimore. 
Now, if you know about Vatican City, <laughs> Vatican City is an independent republic in the middle of Italy. And yeah. so this is the way this is the way that she describes it because she said that at least with the state police, with 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 public universities having police, state legislators had the power of the purse to reward good behavior or to penalize bad behavior with the budgets. But she's saying with this situation, we have no say over what they do or have no capacity to punish bad behavior. And then on top of that, we don't even get to know what the bad behavior is because they're not compelled, they're not required by law to report their behavior, their actions, their police stops. And so this is the reality that many residents are living and surviving with, primarily in urban communities, under the veneer of safety. That they are being targeted, profiled. I, if you look at my book in the beginning of my Chicago chapter, I spent significant amount of time with a young brother by the name of Randy Parker, who is a resident in the Woodlawn neighborhood to the south of U Chicago's uh, neighborhood, uh, uh, campus police. He said he was stopped three or four times a week by uh, 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 U Chicago police. Sometimes they wouldn't even stop the car before they jumped out and threw him up against the wall or a car with the requisite uh, uh, mantra, where the gun's at, where the drug's at. And the crazy thing wow. is that they stopped him so much, they knew him and they still engaged in his behavior. So somebody might say, well, people aren't getting shot a lot. So what's the problem? These daily acts of indignity and dehumanization are shaping the way in which everyday folk are living their lives that's dictated by the university interest. Wow. I, it, it is unbelievable. I mean, with the focus that so many on the left and other progressives and anti-establishment people even focus mm -hmm. on the, the way police, regular police, we're not even talking about campus police, regular right. police are. How mm -hmm. is this not front page news? And, and before we go there, I want to ask a question. Sometimes yeah. when you're living in the middle of a war zone or you're in the middle of, of all this stuff, it's hard mm -hmm. to even know what is really happening around you. You feel it, right. you know something's wrong, but you right. can't identify it. You've put this into great detail here. How aware are the communities that are being impacted by this? How aware are they of the actual, yeah. I, for lack of a better word, crime Mm -hmm. that's being committed or at least the aggression that is being put again how aware are they of the actual culprit are they still looking around for the bad guy do they know what's yeah. going on that's a great question so if you look at a neighborhood like uh if you look at um new hallville in new haven or west baltimore um or the south side of chicago these are neighborhoods that have been racked by crime so at the initial stages many residents welcomed the additional layer of campus policing with jurisdiction and arrest powers and arm and armament. But what they quickly began to realize or experience was that they were being targets of racial profiling, especially pre yeah. of predominantly white institutions in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. They were being subject to racial profiling or what activists in Chicago called a, a two-tier policing system, where you have a student and a resident committing the same infraction but the student goes before the dean of students and the resident goes through the criminal justice system. And so they began oh. to they began to see this and they're like, wait a minute, this is not the answer. And to your point, um, during the uprisings of, of the summer 2020, where people were calling for either police reform or police abolition, talking about police more broadly, 
um, residents and activists in that moment began to say, well, wait a minute, who are the primary policers in my neighborhood? It's not even the municipal police, it's campus police. And so in that moment, you began to see a shift from targeting just simply a broad understanding of abolishing or reforming policing to targeting and specifically focusing on campus police. And so right now I'm a part of or affiliated with, or I'm, I, I, I'm aware of a groundswell of organizations in Chicago. There are a number of groups like um, Stop, Southside Together, Organizing for Power. There's um, Asada's Daughters, there's BYP 100, there's the Invisible Institute. Uh, nationally, there's um, uh, um, uh, Cops Off Campus. Um, there are There's a Yale um, community organization against disarmament. Um, so there are coalitions of students and residents and, com and community activists um, that are saying that the biggest focus, if, if anywhere, any place where we can begin to think about police abolition, it's campus police. Because, and this is something that, that Mary, Senator Mary Washington said to me even before, I talked to her in 2019. So this is a year before the, the, uh, the uprisings. And she was saying, you look at Johns Hopkins, it has this the most amazing medical complex in the world, right? Uh, the elite from the Middle East come here to get medical health treatment. If we look at what is what are the actual public safety needs of communities like West Baltimore or South Chicago or, or South Side of Chicago, it's food security, housing security, and trauma care. So just to start, instead of turning to uh, uh, unleashing bands of armed police on communities, the actual public safety needs could be at least partially met by bringing healthcare workers from these campuses into these communities and addressing the root causes of crime. Poverty, trauma, medical health needs. That's what, if, if universities, since universities claim to be solving global problems, instead of ramping up armed police, use the capacity, your capacity as educators and healthcare providers, bring that to the community. Instead of uh, uh, building out uh, profitable cancer treatment research centers and, and uh, uh, <laughs> plastic surgery bureaus and, and doing away with community healthcare centers. Send your healthcare professionals into the communities. What is the impact? And, and this may seem like a dumb question because everybody mm. should know this. But my guess is, is that while I could probably list, let's say, seven out of 10 reasons for this, what are some of the impacts of the inequality to the community? What does it do to the psychology of the people mm. living there? When, when you're when you're seeing someone treated differently than yourself, when you're living in a community and you're watching yourself treated as an outcast in your own home, you know, what does yeah. that do psychologically to people? How do, how do they well, behave in that? I, I wouldn't be happy. It's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but I can tell you, you know, from my observations and analysis. So what would it mean? You know, most of us think about when we think about police. We think about protect and serve that they're there. They're paid by the public tax by the, you know. They're there to protect them. When they come up, the job we can talk to them. We can. They're an advocate for our safety. In these communities, especially young people, male and female, when police pull up, what does it? What does this mean psychologically when young people immediately walk up to a wall, put their hands on the wall, and spread their legs when they see police officers? Right. Wow. What does it mean? You know, we talk a lot about the talk in the black community. I have three black sons. 
what does it mean that I have to tell my children that when we get stopped by the police, put your hands on the dashboard, make no sudden movements, keep your eyes forward. What does that do to the psyche of people in a community? What does it mean when you have a, a policy like stop, question, and frisk, where the entire neighborhood is presumed to be a criminal space and you have the full wow. right to question and frisk an individual from grandmothers down to down to uh, 18 year olds or even sometimes children without the presumption uh, 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 of guilt, without reasonable cause. So it's, your, your whole psyche becomes oriented around that you live in an occupied zone and that you are a criminal subject. And, and so when we think about people get weirded out or worried, we talk about abolition. So I want to spend a moment, mm -hmm. especially on the campus. Print. So abolition does not mean the end of public safety. What we are engaging with this point, especially when it comes to campus police, is that number one, officers are not trained to handle the duties that they are increasingly being tasked with. The majority of, uh, because of a divestment from social services, because we as a, as a public have divested from social services, those responsibilities have been transferred to police officers that have not been trained to handle those responsibilities. That's number one. Oh my number God. two, nine out of 10 calls for services, and police records will tell this, will bear this out. Nine out of 10 calls for police services do not require an armed response. So if we take these two realities, what can happen? We can shift responsibility and resources to the areas that have primarily been handled by the police. This does a service not only to the community, but it also does a service to the police because they're not being required to perform services and tasks that they're not equipped to handle. And just from a basic level, if your neighborhood has become a criminalized zone, what does it mean when you don't require an armed response for most needs in the communities? So now if we drill it down to the campus, as I said before, because of the branding model of the university, their approach is to make silent the crime on campuses, right? The, the job of campus police that I witnessed and that I've heard from conversations and I've seen when there is a drug overdose, for example, uh, they, their job is to shuttle that student to the hospital, not to arrest them. When there is a sexual assault, their job is to move that case to the legal team and to keep it invisible. But if there's a threat, right, so a breach of the perimeter from the, the town <laughs> locals, their job is to show a sign of force because that policing model is dictated by an economic metrics, right? Mm. To generate safety, to encourage investment. So the campus, the campus is site is the perfect site to begin to think about abolition so that we can better align public safety needs with the actual function of campus and city safety this that is such sense. a huge deal one one yeah huge sense it, one of the things you said earlier i just want to throw this in there i'm a father of an autistic son and he's mm -hmm. a wonderful yep. wonderful yep. boy but one of his most exciting things in this world like and it breaks my heart i'm not even gonna lie it breaks my mm -hmm. heart in the worst possible way 
but he absolutely reveres the police. He right. looks at their videos, little kid car videos, propaganda, whatever. Yeah. He loves the police. He thinks, mm -hmm. daddy, daddy, look, look, look. He watches his blippy show. There's the police. Imagine one of these guys that doesn't understand autism. And right. this is just me talking as a white man with a white son and yep. of special needs. Mm -hmm. I have seen videos of black children children in these minority communities where they have been beaten down and oppressed and presumed guilty just for walking out their front door right. and a, an autistic child doesn't know mm -hmm. how to respond, doesn't know how to answer commands, doesn't know how to do certain things. And these campus police out in these communities where there are so many untreated, unhelped yep. Yep. autistic children. And I right. can assure you, that the school systems are not getting enough funding for autism, not getting enough mm -hmm. funding for these sorts of things. I just imagine I've seen kids hogtied and tasered and yep. hurt in many, many ways. I can only imagine it, like pouring jet fuel on it in the African-American community as these police yep. officers are there to do this. I, I, it's, it's appalling. Can you talk a little, cause that yeah. was what you, I you, feel like you, you were addressing. They're not prepared yeah. to handle that scenario. Yep. You're, you're making an amazing and, and critical point here is that if we look at the model of policing in the U.S. that's now being exported globally, their approach to uh, uh, residents, especially in these communities of color, black, brown, Asian, native, indigenous, it, uh, is to see individuals in these communities as enemy combatants. Again, a militarized landscape. So what do you do when you're confronted with somebody, either a child or an adult, with mental health challenges and the police organize their idea around safety and policing number one they they want to shut down or respond to what they call furtive movements quick movements and their approach is full and complete compliance well children in general but especially children especially children and adults are not going to respond well to this dictate of you know no further movements and they're uh -huh. also not going to respond well to this notion of complete and total compliance. And so in these cases, and you can go on YouTube and you can see this individuals, adults, children with mental health needs or challenges when they are engaging, when they're having an episode or simply are not behaving in a way that's considered, considered normal or normative or in align with the police idea of safety and compliance, they've been hogtied, uh, 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 assaulted, and in some cases shocked. Um, when they're not acting in accordance with the rules and dictates of police. And so, like, right, for example, when we have all these videos about African-Americans and, and Latinx residents being shot, the public outcries, well, just comply, just comply. But the, the critical wedge in that framework is that, okay, what if you have mental health conditions and you can't comply, or your idea of compliance is different? Or in a broader way, we all have the basic right to ask questions of the police. Yeah. But certain people are not are allowed to ask. There is a racial and social disparity in interpretations of compliance based on who can ask questions and who can exercise their constitutional rights and who can't. So what is allowed to happen in certain communities can't happen in communities that have been deemed as inherently criminal. Wow. And so yeah. this is a phenomenon that happens with policing more broadly, but it's happening in real time. You don't, we don't have to imagine it. 
Um, just in 2018, Charles Soji Thomas was having a mental health episode on the South Side, and the U Chicago police shot him. Right. So, so uh, just a couple of weeks ago, there was an individual. I think he might have had a knife or a weapon. Also on the South Side, was having a mental health episode, and U Chicago police shot him. Now, from the outside, people are saying, "Well, wait a minute. This person is is a threat to society. He needs to be put down." I just want us to just, you know, pause on that approach. <laughs> okay. Yes, he might be a threat. But we know when we've witnessed police engage in non-combative de-escalation tactics in certain communities. And if it was your children, and many times it is our children, you would want the police either to be equipped with or to have trained professionals next in partnership to figure out ways to de-escalate a situation, to at least attempt de-escalation before resorting to violence. But what we're yes. seeing in these communities all over the country is that there aren't even attempts to de-escalate. There's non-compliance, immediate violent response on the That's part close. of the police, right? High escalation. That's the problem. And so this whole question or this whole notion of, well, we need to be safe. We need to break that down and understand safety is not distributed evenly. <laughs> And constitutional rights are not distributed evenly. Because even though you can have rights on the books, the interpretation and the enforcement of those rights is many times adjudicated behind the barrel of a gun on the street level. It's not lawyers that are dictating constitutional rights, it's police officers. And if they yes. feel a threat or, or if they consider somebody to be unsafe, not just because they're unsafe, but because they're not obeying orders, they they can and many times do respond with violence and then the illegality of it gets handled later in the courts or sometimes not at all. And so what's happening is that campus campuses and especially as campus police are gaining jurisdiction over larger swaths of our cities and towns and have the same policing powers and armament as municipal or so-called normal police campus police have become the front lines for all these issues around safety, compliance, furtive movements, public safety, campuses, campus, as cities become campuses. This is ground zero for these conversations about around what really is, what does it mean to engage in humane and just public safety? You know, this is really, really deep stuff. And it we could go on for hours. We don't have hours. We only right. have minutes. Right. Yes. Take us out here. What, what is the key takeaway that you would like people to know? Because I, I told you offline, I've told you on camera, I told you on audio, I really want to be a part of this. I don't know how to really get our organization more deeply involved, but yeah. I feel tremendously like this is super important. This is, this is a really important place to direct some activism. And I, I want to be a part of this. So, Take us out with yes. some messaging for how we can get involved. Right. So I would just say I want to uh, uh, amplify the national organization Cops Off Campus. Then there are also in, in every in every in most cities and towns, there are local variations, whether it be Care Not Cops or New Haven, New Haven Rising or BYP 100, which is a national network. Um, there are groups all over the country that for decades have been thinking and advocating for non-lethal forms of public safety. 
and this is a critical issue. And we and we drill down to the campus landscape. Campus police are not there for public safety. At best, they're reactionary. Their primary function is to serve and protect the growing political economy of the campus as a knowledge industry. We need to be clear about that. So that at the end of the day, there was a total disconnect. There's a disconnect more broadly, but especially on campuses, there's a disconnect between the function of police and the needs of safety. We need to close that gap by thinking about various forms of public safety in terms of health, housing, jobs, trauma treatment, healthcare treatment. Those are the forms. I'm not saying they will guarantee an end to crime. I'm not saying that. Right. But these are the areas that serve the root causes of most crimes that are surrounding our communities. And if we can begin anywhere in thinking about either police reform or police abolition, campuses, especially as they are expanding out into our cities and controlling our cities, higher education policing is ground zero for thinking about a different tomorrow when it comes to public safety. Dude, that was amazing. Um, I want to thank you so much. Folks, please get DeVarian's book. Go ahead and let them know what, what your book's called and where they can find it. Sure. So it's called In the Shadow of the Ivy Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. It's full It's full of, uh, it has a critical analysis, but I want you to know, as we talked about at the end of this um, conversation, it also was filled with very practical and honest solutions about how we can build a better world. I'm not anti-university. I believe university can be the site for liberatory transformation, but we have to understand it as it actually is and not simply as the way we would hope it to be. As my good friend Craig Wilder says, we have to understand that education has become a primarily a side hustle in higher education. <laughs> and all these non-educational, economically driven uh, aspects can be positive, but they're having adverse effects on our communities. So you can get the book. Uh, it's published by Bold Type Books, but you can get it at, you know, I would say don't go to Amazon, go to your local bookstore. <laughs> Uh, and, and get the book. I'd appreciate it. And we can talk. I'm on Twitter at DeVarian Baldwin. Let's continue the conversation. Amen, brother. Thank you so much, DeVarian. I really cannot tell you how much I'm glad I was introduced to you because you are right on the front line, man. I love this. So thank you so much. And folks, I'm Steve Grumbine with the Rogue Scholar and my guest, DeVarian Baldwin. Hope you all enjoyed today. Let's get active on this. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much, Steve. The Rogue Scholar is a production of Real Progressives. If you would like to support our work, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressives.